The following message was preached at Redeemer Community Church. For more information about Redeemer, visit us online at www.redeemernc.org. Today's scripture reading comes from Daniel 9, 4 through 10. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, Ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God, who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us. The men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel— those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty they have shown toward you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. Though we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the Lord our God by following his instructions that he set before us through his servants and prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you, worship leaders, for helping us hear and understand the gospel this morning. Now we're talking about confession, so I'll start off with a confession. Here it is, my first one. I don't condone bank robberies but I absolutely love a good bank robbery on a television or movie drama. These guys have concocted some sort of a plan to rob the bank and get away with it. Of course, it never happens, I think. They put it together, but then, of course, things go awry quickly, which makes it very, very entertaining to me. Um, so, you know, that they, they get the money, but they end up shooting the, the bank president, a teller, maybe the security guard. Uh, they take a couple hostages, but somehow they get away. They make it out into the country. They hole up in some sort of a shack in the woods, but the police are on their tail the whole time. And in fact, the police surround the cabin, and this is going to be a dramatic ending, uh, a, probably a bloody and loud ending to this whole thing. They surround it with all of these policemen, and, the, and maybe the policemen bring in, like, you know, they bring in a tank and some flamethrowers and some missiles and just all kinds of stuff. And then and then the policeman, though, they're waiting for the police captain to get there so he can take charge. The police captain arrives and, hey, what, what, what's the situation here? Well, it's three bank robbers and they've got some hostages and, and they're holed up there, but don't worry, we got them surrounded. And so then the police captain takes the bullhorn and says, all right, you guys, you're completely surrounded. You're outmanned, you're outgunned. There's no way you can get out of this one alive. So come out with your hands up. Uh, and then that's, that'll be the end of the story. And then this is where he gets a little bit wobbly now. This is the kind of thing you probably won't see. A, a voice, a voice comes out of the cabin and said, hey, Captain, uh, I'm one of the hostages. I was just getting one of my checks cashed. And they took him as a hostage, and I want you to know that we are so sorry for robbing this bank. We're so sorry for doing this. We know this is wrong. We feel terrible that we killed some people. And, and we feel awful and, and awful about that. And I just want you to know that we also have killed a lot of other people and we've robbed a lot of other banks too. But we're coming out, we're dropping our weapons and we're coming out with our hands up in the air. 
and this is what you really have never seen before in a movie. And the police captain says, all right, come on out with your hands up. All is forgiven. We're going to completely overlook the bank robberies and the murders, and you all just come on out, and everything's okay. We forgive you, and then everybody has coffee and donuts. Now, our Daniel shouts out from the house of Israel, surrounded by God, and he does that just just that in chapter 9 of his book. He confesses Israel's sins and he asks for forgiveness and he confesses sins as if they are his own. It's weird, but precious. But first, look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a Mede by birth who was made king over the Chaldean kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the books according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, that the number of years for the desolation of Jerusalem would be 70. So I turned my attention to the Lord God to seek him by prayer and petitions with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Here's the setting of chapter 9, you guys. In Daniel chapter 1, it was 605 B.C. In chapter 9, it is 539 B.C. Daniel has been either reading or remembering his Bible. Jeremiah had said in chapter 25 of his famous prophecy, listen to this, do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm. But you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And then in Jeremiah 25, not 9, verses 11 through 12, he says, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. At this time then, chapter 9, Jerusalem is destroyed, and so is the temple. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon are gone. A reasonable amount of time has passed between Jeremiah's prophecy and the present. It is 70 years of captivity, or the typical lifetime of a person. So at 70 years, almost every sinful Israelite at the beginning of the captivity is now dead, except for Daniel. So Daniel's prayer is prompted by godly restlessness. He has read in his Bible both promises of punishment for sin and restoration of God's people to their land. He's compelled to confess sin and compelled to see God keep his promises. Did God answer and keep his promises just like the people thought he would? No, he did not. You can know that God keeps his promises, but you cannot know exactly how he will do that. Take Jesus. Jesus changed everything about Jewish expectations. His opponents in Jerusalem saw him clear out the temple. They were angry and furious. And he said, destroy the temple and I'll raise it up in three days. They don't understand the true meaning of the temple. So they don't understand how Jesus fulfills the temple and will 
and what exactly will happen after his crucifixion. Later, the disciples remark to Jesus as they're looking at the temple, the, the, the mountain, all the buildings. They say, hey, Jesus, this isn't the most beautiful thing in the world, these, these white buildings gleaming in the sun. Isn't this a beautiful thing? And Jesus says, um, it's all going to be destroyed. And in, within your generation, they think this is a prophecy of the end of time. And Jesus says, no. Not only does this age not end then, it even gets worse before it gets better. There are some, these are some of the lessons about the future that Daniel is learning, and, and he understands very, very little. The thing about the book of Daniel you should see is that it's 50 puzzle pieces out of a jigsaw puzzle of 500 pieces. It's just part. He doesn't understand it all. Well, then Daniel begins to pray a remarkable prayer. Now, in his prayer, I want you to look for three things with me and as you read this again and again in the future. Number one, what Daniel says about Israel and himself and us. Because God is especially awesome when you know your true condition and you still find forgiveness. Secondly, what Daniel says about God. Because prayer is a response to theology. Are you afraid to confess your sins to God? Then it's because you don't know your Bible very well. Is your prayer life shallow? Then it's because you don't know your Bible very well. Prayer is a response to what you know and believe about God. It's a response to theology. And then thirdly, I want you to see and look for what Daniel thinks the goal of his prayer is. Because true prayer always aims towards something important. Verse four, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed, ah, Lord, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, and turned away from your commands and ordinances. We've not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. Daniel keeps saying us and we around 20 times. He places himself not as one of the hostages, but as one of the criminals. But he stands as a kind of a mediator between his nation, Israel, and God. Look at Daniel's description of sin. Just, as you're just sort of looking through in your Bible, just see this, and let me make a few comments about his description of sin. It's important. Verse five, we've sinned. Sin is failing to meet a standard. The strongest personal evidence that we missed the mark that we don't meet the standard is that we fail to meet the standard that we don't even, that we have for other people. We have a standard for others to say this is how you ought to behave and we don't even keep that standard for ourselves. We think people should be unfailingly honest, perpetually selfless, perfectly fair, instantly forgiving and so on, but we're none of these. So not only do we fail to meet God's righteous standard, we don't even keep the standard we have for others. He says, we're wicked. We've acted wickedly. That's a word that's preserved for the unbelievers in the Bible. It's a strong word. The wicked are people who don't know God. They ignore him. They disrespect him. Israel sometimes acted as if they had never even met God. Are you sometimes two different people? Do you act one way around Christians, another way around unbelievers? 
Do you pay attention to God at church, but ignore him at home or play or at work? He says, we've rebelled. Rebellion is deliberate. It's intentional disobedience. That's a strong word. I was not deceived. I didn't stumble into sin. I was not weak. I just said, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. That's the truth, you guys. Rebellion is not passive sin. It's not ignoring God, but actually running toward him to fight him. Rebellion is two fists in the air toward God. Stubborn. In verse 6, he says, we have not listened to the prophets. We're terrible listeners, Daniel says. Verse 11, he says, we refuse to obey. We have everything we need to live righteously. We're more like stubborn mules. Verse 7 says that we're disloyal. We're unfaithful. When I was a biology teacher many years ago, I was called into the school courtyard by the principal to get a very, very large black rat snake out of the courtyard, just as the bell rang and all the students were coming come in there. They were going to abuse the snake, so I had to pick up the snake. And I did pick up the snake, but I didn't quite grab it exactly right. When I picked it up, it turned around and bit me on the hand in front of hundreds of students. I thought, man, what disloyalty, what unfaithful. And I even took that snake into the woods, safely into the woods. I was its savior, and it turned around, was disloyal to me. And I thought to myself later on, my, don't I have a lot in common with that snake? All that Christ has done for me and my loyalty is suspect. Finally, it says, verse 11, we are, we are uh, lawbreakers, transgressing, knowing the boundaries and crossing them anyway. Not only do I like walking by the fence instead of staying away from it, I even like walking on top of the fence, kind of even hoping the wind will blow me over to the other side. And don't we all know that the other side is always having so much more fun than we are? Now, with that thorough and graphic description, with that resume that we all have, I think, does it matter who you confess that to? Look at Daniel's description of God. Again, quickly, a little survey of Daniel's description of God. He says, for instance, God is awesome or awe-inspiring, verse 4. Awesome is one of the most overused and improperly used words in America. It's a great word if it's used legitimately or if it's used for something that truly is awe-inspiring. But if everything is awesome, of course, then nothing is awesome, right? What happened to this word? I bake a cake. Say, I bake a cake. I asked how you like it. And you say, it was awesome. Just some awe? I ask another person, how did you like my cake? It was awful. Oh, good. It was full of awe. What does somebody, do we, is the cake good or not? I'm so confused by the terminology here. Maybe God should be described as both awesome and awful and so awe-inspiring. Maybe a little fear and trembling is actually good for all of us. Paul said to Timothy, God alone has immortality who dwells in unapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. The Bible says that no one can see God and live. We use the phrase, it took my breath away. Have you ever said that before? It was breathtaking. Oh, that wedding dress, it was just breathtaking. That surprise party, it took my breath away. Or, you know, I went on a boat excursion and I saw a whale close up. It was breathtaking. 
I wonder if seeing God as a mortal ends your life because your breath is literally taken away. Maybe seeing God just causes you to forget to breathe. You can't imagine forgetting to breathe. But then you've never seen God. Can you imagine? He says about God, not as just he's awe-inspiring, but he's covenant-keeping, verse four. God continually reminds Israel and us that he's a covenant-keeping God. He keeps his promises. God keeps his end of the agreement, even when we never do. Now, I want you to remember that word covenant for next Sunday, because it comes up again very, very importantly in the next remaining part of the chapter. But God's a covenant-keeping God. It says also, Daniel says, God is righteous, verse 7. Lord, righteousness belongs to you. God's always righteous in his justice and his judgments. Daniel never claims that God's punishment of Israel is undeserved or too much. He says God is righteous. How would you feel about knowing, how would you feel about knowing that you are truly guilty of something, anything, okay? And approaching a judge in his courtroom where you knew that that judge was unusually righteous in his verdicts and punishments, where that judge's reputation was to give exactly what you deserve. You got that? Would you say, knowing you had to face this judge, oh, great. Or would it be, oh, no. Getting what you deserve no more or no less, more or no less seems righteous. Do you really want to get what you deserve? Is that what you want? What you deserve? Finally, Daniel talks about God's response. God's response to Israel is to reveal Reveal and to act. Verses 6 and 11 through 13, Daniel remembers that God revealed his will through the prophets. He revealed his will in the law of Moses. God revealing himself is an act of actually of amazing grace. The Bible itself is an act of, of the grace of God. The thing you have on your lap, that's the grace of God. See, God revealing himself is, is grace. He's not hiding himself. He's revealing himself in his word. This is what makes disobedience so bad. We know the truth. Ultimately, God reveals himself in Jesus. This is why rejection of truth in Jesus, why it's so bad. So his response to sinners is to reveal his will and act. Now see how God acts. Look at, look at verse 15. Now, Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a strong hand and made your name renowned as it is this day, we have sinned, we have acted wickedly. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, may your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become an object of ridicule to those around us. Therefore, our God, hear the prayer and the petitions of your servant. Make your face shine on your desolate sanctuary for the Lord's sake. Listen closely, my God, and hear Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that bears your name. For we're not presenting our petitions before you based on our righteous acts, but based on your abundant compassion. Lord, hear. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen and act. My God, for your own sake, do not delay because your city and your people bear your name. God has responded. He sees and hears and acts. Israel is to remember the exodus and never forget that. We are to remember our exodus 
from sin and death in Christ. And we do this every Sunday at least. That's the importance of the Lord's Supper. God still responds to us. How awful is it to hurt someone and to try to ask for forgiveness, but they ignore you? How awful is it to fail someone, repent to them, have them say to you that you are forgiven, but then hear the response, okay, but now you're on your own. I offer you no solution for the consequences you must bear. Our relationship is over. No, no, God responds to sinners who confess and repent. God acts to redeem, to restore and repair. So that is how Daniel speaks about the God he's confessing to. Here now, so far, we have a survey of Daniel's prayer about sinners and about God. Let me do this for you. Let me summarize Daniel's confession so that you will remember this when you're also praying and confessing to your Savior. Three words here, seriousness, seriousness, sinful, wicked, rebellious, shameful, disobedient, disloyal, stubborn. The question to ask is, do I tend to minimize my sin, to minimize the seriousness of it? Here's where the reformers were right to begin with describing the human condition as one of total depravity or radical depravity. What place is there for free will? How in the world could you have Daniel chapter 9 and just say that's all you have? I didn't even mention Romans 3 or Romans 5. And say, as bad as we are, there's still enough good left in me to use my free will to choose Christ. No. We're going to have to take sin seriously. Here's the second thing, solidarity. I want you to think this way. All Israel has transgressed your law, he says. All have sinned. So that's what we have all in common. We're all sinners. We have that in common with the entire human race. But saved from sin, our church has something in common too, just among ourselves. We're a single body. We're a single body. And what happens to the body affects me. In fact, I want to ask the question, am I partly accountable or responsible for what happens to my church body, my family in Christ. What responsibility do I bear for my church's sin? And so to love one another is to care so much about sin that you're thinking about someone else's sin then is in some sort of way my sin too. That's caring and loving, solidarity. But then this is the important thing, supplication. Listen, you guys, supplication is crying out to God. It's asking, it's pleading for help. Oh, Lord, pay attention. Hear, listen, see, act, and forgive. A supplication is not the sum total of our prayers, but it is biblical to implore God to respond to your plea. So do it. Intercede for unbelievers. Pray for church members who need help. Intercede for the oppressed in society. Daniel did it by fasting sackcloth and ashes. Oh, Daniel, he's so overdramatic, isn't he? We would never do that. That must be something that they did way back in the day. I would never do that. Okay, okay then, don't fast in sackcloth and ashes, but can we at least pray more and intercede for others to our Savior? Cry and plead with them. We need to do that. Walking away from this chapter, I want you to think about three characteristics of God recognized by Daniel. I want you to remember them when you pray. And especially 
when you confess. Number one, relationship. Daniel's relentless about this. God is a relational God. At the end of Daniel's prayer, he petitions God to act for, quote, your city and your people that bear your name. God keeps his gracious covenant. He acted to relate to us. He chose us for relationship without any regard to our worthiness or unworthiness, I should say. He's a father to his children and he acts accordingly. He rescues us when we're enslaved. His love is steadfast and dependable because he keeps his covenant. Daniel says that he carries out his word. Righteous fathers keep their word to their children. He said that God has done all that was written in the law of Moses. The law was given to covenant people. Warnings were given by God's servants and prophets to covenant people. So God has just kept his word. No matter how bad Israel was, Daniel never believed their relationship was severed because God is a covenant-keeping God. Do you realize, shall we say it again? We need to say it again. Do you realize that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Do you realize that before God saved you, he knew he was saving people who would still battle sin. After salvation, still battle sin and often fail. Sometimes fail really, really badly. But he's still our father. We're still his children. Secondly, righteous. God is righteous. Daniel says that our Lord God is righteous in all that he has done. Verse 14. He cannot ignore sin. All sin must be accounted for and met with justice. What he does about sin is always right and perfect. So when we think this person doesn't deserve mercy, his mercy is righteous. When we think God has given someone way too much time, his patience is righteous. When we think his hand of chastening and punishment is too severe, his chastening and punishment are righteous. And then thirdly, just to choose one word, this is all through this, God is merciful. Call him loving, call him gracious, he's merciful. Right in the middle of this verse, of this prayer is verse nine. Compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God, though we have rebelled against him. He waits patiently for repentance. His chastisement is lighter and shorter than we deserve. His mercy outweighs and overwhelms our sin. I think you should agree with me on this. I think it's true. There's only one truly ridiculous, outrageous, scandalous truth about Christianity. It is that a holy God pours out his wrath against sin on his one and only son and grants Total forgiveness to those who bring simple faith to that. That is ridiculous. That is the gospel. All right, now here's our summary then of Daniel's prayer. Because we have this situation of the police with all of this armament against the bank robbers. They're against each other and one of them is gonna win. So us, Sinners, but hopeful. Daniel's prayer is about us, sinners, but hopeful. I urge you, I'll urge all of you, don't minimize your sin. 
Don't make excuses. Well, my parents, I had terrible parents. They did this and they did that and they didn't give me this and they abused me and, I, and my parents, I, I can't be responsible for my parents. My spouse, I would do this, I would do the right thing, but my spouse, uh, I would join the church, but my, I, you know, I had a former church that was just awful and so I'm just not gonna have anything to do with church anymore. My, it's always somebody to blame. Don't minimize sin now. We know our sin is serious because it required the death of the sinless son of God. Jesus Christ. So we have to take that seriously. Daniel says that he does not approach God for Israel because of any righteousness, but because of God's abundant compassion. His hope is God's compassion. So absolutely know that no matter how awful you are or how much you failed God, he listens and acts without hesitation to confessing repentant sinners. And there's God, awesome, but forgiving. So again, verse nine, compassion and forgiveness belong to the Lord our God. Awe is inspired by the magnitude of forgiveness. Are you, are you in awe of everything? That's ridiculous. Are you in awe of nothing? Let's go back to the gospel. Awe is inspired by the magnitude of forgiveness. Here's how I would suggest you measure forgiveness. Number one, what is the sin? What exactly happened here? Number two, who is offended? That makes a difference. Thirdly, what is the cost? Say I'm not a very good driver. That's possible. What's the difference between accidentally running over my neighbor's mailbox and deliberately running over his dog? Are those the same things? Do you describe your sins as accidents? Is that what you do? Mistakes, weaknesses? What is the sin? Daniel, Daniel just says, if he just said in one word, he said something remarkable, he said, it's rebellion. You, would, you are hesitating to ever call yourself that about your sin, but Daniel is fearless about doing that. So what is the sin? What's the difference between bumping a car in the parking lot, which many of us have probably done, and ramming into the president's motorcade? Who is it that we really offend? Those are gonna have two different outcomes there. Is it another human that we offended or is it really God? I mean, who is our sin really against? In other words, do my sins just offend society and, and other mortals or do my sins offend a holy, almighty, awesome God? And what is the cost of my sins? Is, it, is the cost just property or respect or hurt feelings? No, no, the cost is nothing less than the death of the sinless Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. The situation is that you are alienated from God, a guilty, murderous bank robber, holed up in a house of your own making, surrounded and outgunned in every way, and if you drop your weapons and come out with your hands in the air, you can be forgiven. It doesn't make good television, but it's the truth. The reason God inspires our awe, our wonder, our humility, our total surrender is not that God created everything out of nothing, which is pretty remarkable. It's not that he's all powerful or all knowing or everywhere present. It is that he is a God who forgives. Jesus, the only perfect mediator between God and man has become like one of us. He's taken our side. He's suffered for us. And as Peter says, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. 
But one last thing about prayer that should always be a part of all prayers, including confessional prayers, is that we have a goal. We always have a goal. And it's God's glory and name. Less so the thing that you're asking for and more so God's glory. He says, for your own sake twice and your own name twice. Daniel's most concerned for God's reputation and glory. Is this the ultimate goal of your prayer life? Check it out this week. What are the chances, you guys, if the, if the aim of your prayers is really, truly the glory of God, that your prayers will not be answered? Really? How can we work to be consumed for the glory of God in 2023? How can we do this? Let's, let's think about that this year. What does the glory of God look like in marriage? In parenting? What does it look like in how we use our income? What does the glory of God look like in caring for one another and forgiving one another? What does the glory of God look like in our missional living in this community? So Daniel's concern is that an awesome God should be known for who he is and glorified. As awesome as God is, I think that his greatest glory is not in creation or miracles, but in the forgiveness of sinners. In all of the religions of the world, has there ever been a God who loves freely forgives sinners who come to him in humble, repentant faith. Pray with me this morning. Father, we read and want this to be true for us. Help us, like Daniel, to understand the depth and seriousness of our sin. Help us to care for one another as a church body for each other's sins and failures. We pray, Father, that we would understand the cost. I mean, really, Lord, the real cost. And make that known to us as we take your supper, the cost of our sin. What an awesome God you are. You do inspire our awe when we think about the depth of our sin, the height of your grace, and the salvation that you are giving us in Jesus Christ. We pray this for your glory, for your name to be renowned. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Community Church in Fuquay, Verena, North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more sermons, we invite you to visit us online at RedeemerNC.org.